Hey everybody, uh, thanks so much for coming. My name is Rahul Pathak, and we're here to talk about AWS Lake Formation. So uh, it's the last session of the day. I'm really going to drag this one out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Um, so we're going to, you know, we're booked for an hour. What will probably happen is we'll go quickly through the slides. We'll open up for questions so people, if they want to get to other things, can. Uh, so I've been at Amazon about seven years. I'm the general manager for our big data, data lakes, and blockchain area. And today we're going to talk about why we built Lake Formation, what is it, and uh, why you should care about it, and then what it's going to do for you, and how we believe it's going to simplify what you're trying to do with S3 and data lakes. Uh, so quick show of hands, who has data on S3 today? <laughs> All right, that's what I was hoping. And um, who's using S3 as their primary data lake or data warehouse? All right, so it's a smaller set, but not bad. All right. So hopefully we'll work to change that as you get to use this service. But um, you know, one of the key drivers behind the adoption of data lakes has been that data is growing at an insane rate. So I'm, I know for sure all of you have at least one cell phone in this room. I'm pretty sure some of you have more than one. Um, so what we're seeing across our customer base is that data is growing roughly 10x every five years. And so if you've got a platform decision that's going to live 10 years, that's a 100x increase, 15 years is a 1,000x increase. So if you're dealing with a terabyte today, you're going to be dealing with a petabyte in 15 years, and uh, we're going to go up from there. Petabytes will become exabytes. And this is going beyond the, the classic sort of tabular relational database data that used to be in ERP systems and CRM systems. We're now seeing events coming off of web applications, social media. So it's a mix of semi-structured and structured data. Uh, and we need to find a way to make sense of all of this. The other piece of it is that we're increasingly seeing more and more customers wanting to give governed access to data broadly throughout their organization. So we, talk, we hear customers saying things like, I want to democratize data access. I want to get out of the way. I want to get people experimenting with data, but only the data they're allowed to see. Uh, and people are doing more than just sort of the uh, classic reporting and dashboarding. They also want to do real-time processing. They want to do machine learning and predictive analytics. Uh, and so this is really driving uh, the need for more flexibility in how data is consumed. And so what we've got with a data lake is uh, something that spans beyond the boundary of a data warehouse. It allows you to keep all of your data, uh, and it's a centralized repository for both structured, semi-structured, and unstructured data. And we want you to be able to keep it there and then be able to access it through multiple systems. And uh, the reason unstructured data is interesting, if you think about things like images or video or text, uh, these used to be opaque to analytic systems. But now, with some of the ML services that we have, you can actually extract metadata from images or from video or from audio. And that metadata becomes things that you can build dashboards on, run queries on, build predictive models around. And so data that used to be opaque is now becoming visible and transparent uh, to analytic services. And so what we have is this idea of uh, multiple sources of data, your classic line of business systems and databases going into data warehouses. You've got semi-structured and unstructured coming into data lakes. And then you need a catalog to really tell you what you have so you know where your data is, which database it resides in, where on S3 it is. Uh, and then you want to be able to really run any sort of analytics that you want on this data simultaneously. And so as you all know, everyone has data in S3. S3 supports multiple systems acting on the same data simultaneously without interfering with each other. Uh, and so you can run data warehousing in Redshift. 
You can use Redshift Spectrum to run scale-out exabyte queries over data in S3 as well as data in the cluster. Uh, with EMR, you get the latest of the Apache open source ecosystem for analytics. And then you can have real-time and interactive analysis with things like Athena. And then QuickSight for visualization, SageMaker, and more for ML. Uh, and so what data lakes enable really is any workload uh, at any scale at low cost. And so we have individual customers in S3 uh, that are nudging the exabyte scale. And uh, once you're able to bring data in using a variety of services like uh, Kinesis for streaming data, Snowmobile if you happen to have 100 petabytes lying around that you need to move, um, and that data can come to S3, it can be cataloged, and then it's available for analysis and ML. Uh, we've got just about, uh, you know, it's a, people in pretty much every industry at every scale are using AWS for analytics and S3 for data lakes. And really the thing to take away from this slide is, hey, yes, a lot of people do this and all of you do, which is great. Uh, but it's really people of any scale. So you can be starting small, running small experiments on megabytes, but there's, then these can scale up to uh, hundreds of petabytes and beyond. So Fortnite, for example, builds their S3, uh, their data lake entirely on S3. And that's 14 petabytes of data uh, growing at two petabytes a month, uh, all tracking how you're playing games uh, to get you to play more. Um, and there's just a broad range of use cases here. But it's challenging. So if you want to set up a data lake, uh, what do you have to do? You have to figure out where your sources are. You have to set up your storage locations on S3. You've got to figure out where to land data that's raw, where you're going to put data that's been transformed and curated. You have to identify your data sources. Are they coming from Kinesis or relational databases? Am I pulling in log files? Uh, and once that data's in, you're going to clean it, combine it, transform it, uh, and get it into a form that's optimized for query. And then once it's in the queryable system, you then have to figure out what you're going to do to govern access to that data. How will you set up policies? How will you think about what data people are allowed to access? How can you match that to the S3 permissions that you need? How do you configure the grants inside of Redshift or the, or the security controls inside of Glue? Uh, and then you'll make your data available for analysis. So there's a lot of work to be done. And this can take some of our customers months, uh, especially if you've got complex workloads or a, a very complicated enterprise security policy or a large company with multiple different roles. Uh, it takes a long time to get all of this set up correctly uh, to where you're confident to allow people open access. And a lot of time is actually spent dealing with data munging. So if you think about, this is actually from a typical machine learning scientist workflow. Uh, they spend about 80% of their time dealing with data. Uh, and then the rest of it goes into things like feature extraction and building and training models. So data is really at the heart of this. And um, you know, we, I work in the, uh, the big data arena. And I talk about it as being the plumbing underneath all of the sexy AI and ML stuff. But it's super important. And it's really the foundation for any sort of predictive analytics that you can drive. Uh, so to give you a sense for what customers have to do today to set up data lakes on S3. So you start by figuring out where your data lives. So here we're looking at RDS instances. You're looking at databases. Uh, what data am I going to pull in? You then go to figure out uh, where on S3 is, gonna, is this going to live. I need to create my buckets. Uh, typically, customers will create a raw zone for landing data that's coming uh, in its raw form. Then they'll create an area for curated data after it's been transformed. And what we recommend to customers is, look, you should bring in your raw data. 
That will get processed downstream into something that will be query optimized. But archive your raw data to Glacier just in case you need to go back to it at any point in the future. You've got an un unvarnished view of history as it was created at the time, and you can always recreate. And we see that as being very important for things like ML, where you might want to go back and relook at the world with a better model. Uh, but anyway, coming back to this, you're putting data into S3 locations. Uh, we're then figuring out access policies, um, and this is, um, you know, there's a lot of power in these. They're very granular, uh, which is great for setting up fine-grained controls, but it also makes it complicated to get correct. And then once you've got your access policies set up, you have to define tables, and you have to then say, uh, here's my schema, this is what it looks like, and the schema is backed by S3 objects and partitions in this particular location. Uh, and then you're able to actually then start to think about what you might want to do to query. And then before you're getting to query, typically customers will be generating data in, in log forms, CSVs, JSONs, and then you'll want to convert this into a query-optimized format. And for most of our customers, that's typically uh, ORC or Parquet. Uh, and those are better just because they're uh, columnar and compressed, so you'll get better query performance, and you'll generally pay less uh, on data scanned. Um, and at this point, you then have to set up who's allowed to access your tables. So we've gone from S3 permissions to data transformations to then access to your schemas. Uh, and then you can start to run queries. So there's just a lot of work to do uh, before you can get started. And now every time you add a data source or you want to configure a new service or you add uh, a new class of user, you've got to go through this process again. So it just takes a long time both to set up and to maintain. And this is what we're trying to get at. Uh, and solve for you with lake formation. So we want to take a lot of the tedious manual aspects of this and the things that make it error-prone uh, out of the process and automate them. Uh, and so with lake formation, the intent is we want to make it easy to get data in uh, and ingest it and transform it. We want to give you a central place to define your security policies so they live with the data. Uh, that way, Whatever service you use, it's okay because the policy is actually enforced with the data. So as long as the user authenticates, the data will define what they're allowed to see. So you can then let them use whatever tooling they want without having to worry about whether inadvertently data is going to be exposed that shouldn't be. Uh, and then we want to allow you to then give people multiple entry points all governed by the same access policies. And it's by combining these data sets and breaking down silos that you can actually start to find uh, interesting elements in your data sets. Uh, so we'll go through uh, really how we do this with lake formation. Uh, and really the way we think about the different stages are uh, we want to ingest uh, data. We want to register the locations, both the sources and the destinations for data in your data lake. We then want to help you set up security and control policies around your data. Uh, we want to allow people to discover and use data sets they're allowed to see. Uh, and then this will allow them to run their queries, to develop their anal analyses. And then we want to give admins a central place to monitor and audit data access. So this way you can close the loop around security. You can set up permissions. You can enforce encryption. Uh, but then you can audit. It's always about uh, verification after the fact. And that's just important for compliance and peace of mind. Uh, so on the register phase, uh, we're really, you know, we're big believers in S3 uh, as the core foundation for data lakes. It's scalable, it's durable, it's highly available. You've got all of the encryption capabilities. You've got its cross-region copy capabilities, uh, the 11.9 durability design point. It's just, in our belief, the best way to build data lakes on AWS. 
Uh, and that's really what we're doing. We're managing your data in S3 using lake formation. Uh, you register any existing S3 buckets that you want to have as part of your lake with the service. Uh, you can also ask LakeFormation to create buckets for your data lake if you haven't already set one up or if you're doing it for the first time. Uh, and data is always under your control. You're not loading it into yet another silo. It's living on S3. It's living in your accounts. It's owned by you. You own all of the encryption keys and all of those controls. Uh, we are managing that process to make it more straightforward. But ultimately, ownership and retention uh, lives with you. And uh, I, I just want to emphasize one point. We talk about uh, open data formats in S3 as being really important. Uh, and this is because it gives you freedom from lock-in. If you've got data in a CSV for a file or JSON or Parquet, you can take it anywhere and use it with just about anything. We've engineered our services to work with this. The open source ecosystem works with this. And you get that portability that's really important. Uh, the other big benefit you get is your technology agnostic. So we have customers like FINRA that have moved from uh, they started with Greenplum on-premise. They moved to Hive on MapReduce on S3. They were then able to spin up Hive on Tez in parallel and then Presto and Spark. Because your data is decoupled from your analytic layer, you can actually run anything simultaneously. And you get this ability to use the best of breed of technology at any point in time uh, and test it without disrupting existing production workloads. So that last point is really important. Uh, open formats in your account on S3. Uh, we then provide blueprints uh, in lake formation. So blueprints are predefined templates that make it easy to get data out of data sources. Uh, we ship with blueprints for uh, databases, relational databases, so the flavors of RDS and Aurora. Um, and then uh, these could also be databases on EC2. Uh, we also have support for data that's been ingested through Kinesis Firehose onto S3. Uh, and we've got predefined templates and, uh, for building uh, schema and partition for uh, CloudTrail logs, ELB logs, CloudFront logs will continue to add to this. And you can always add your custom uh, uh, recognizers for data using glue jobs. So glue for, uh, lake formation really builds on glue. So you have all of the capability and openness of glue uh, as well in order to ingest data. But with blueprints, you just point to your data sources. And we support a one-time ingest into your data lake, uh, as well as an ongoing incremental ingest into the data lake. So uh, with blueprints, we want to make this all just easy for you to set up. And all you have to do when you're using LakeFormation blueprints is point to your data sources, uh, tell us where you want that data to end up, and specify the frequency at which you want that data to be synced. Uh, and then Blueprints will discover the schemas and the source data. It'll automatically convert data if that's what you requested. It will detect partitions as opposed to new tables and keep track of that. Uh, and it'll bring that in on a schedule. And all of this is designed to uh, make it easy for you to get started, but not for you to give up any control. You always have the option to go in, edit, and customize. Uh, and so we're really trying to find the balance between making it easy to use uh, to start, but for those of you who want to get into the details, uh, all of the power is available to you. Uh, you just don't have to deal with it on your first uh, instance of the service. And so with Blueprints, uh, we build on the capabilities of AWS Glue. So we provide uh, templates and workflow to manage what's running underneath, which is Glue jobs and Glue crawlers that are extracting and transforming data, recognizing schema and partitions. And Glue already has the ability to talk to a wide range of databases, both Relational and Dynamo and Redshift, as well as S3. 
Uh, and then there's the Glue Data Catalog, which maintains a registry of your schema and databases and connections. So uh, we really want to wrap all of this and make this easy to use with Lake Formation. And so the way that it works um, is we've also added the ability to build in data cleansing capabilities. Uh, and so this is uh, technology that we've been using in Amazon.com for a long time. If you think about our e-commerce business, hundreds of millions of customers, billions of items in the catalog, uh, and this is typically messy data provided by other people. And so we have the ability to use ML to deduplicate data, uh, to link data using fuzzy matching to figure out these things are actually the same. Um, and then we can provide ways for you to tune these matches so you can actually show us if we're doing better or worse. And then we can, once you're satisfied, build a job that can be run periodically to clean up your data sets. And we're starting with deduplication, uh, which is essentially removing duplicates from incoming data or matching it to existing data. Uh, record linkage, so the idea is that you might have data which represents, say, a merchant ID, but in one table it's called merchant ID, in another it's merchant underscore ID, and we want to actually be able to infer that these are the same thing semantically, and so these ML transform jobs let you do that. Uh, and, you know, a little bit of a deep dive here. So the classic way to do this is you take data sets, you look at all pairs of your data sets, uh, and you try and compute similarity, and then you build partitions based on the likelihood that something is similar. Now, this is fine, uh, except that it's an n-squared algorithm, meaning that your processing time goes up dramatically as your data volumes increase, and pretty quickly this becomes untenable. So the technology that we're using in lake formation it's actually uh, first talked about at VLDB in 2008, but it's a parallelizable way to build dynamic pairing uh, and candidate sets across large volumes of data. So looking at 400 million rows of data and 7.5 billion candidate pairs for matching, you can actually get this done in under three hours. Uh, and then we use customer input uh, as training data so we can actually not require you to spend time fine-tuning models, but rather just tell us this is what I want it to look like and the system will adapt itself, and when you're satisfied, we'll then run that uh, on a schedule or on an event. And we'll continue to build on these uh, uh, over time and as we hear from you about what you'd like to see in this area. Uh, so security. So this is the, uh, the other big uh, time-saving piece that we've got in lake formation. So any of, you, any of you that have built data lakes on S3 know that it's a challenge to actually get the security right because... As users, we think about tables, and we think about columns, and we think about rows, but when it, once you're on S3, you're thinking about objects, and buckets, and ACLs, uh, and figuring out the mapping between those can be challenging. Uh, and then you've got to set up that mapping in any, every service that you use, uh, so you essentially have a problem that multiplies anytime you're adding a new capability to your data lake. And so what we set out to do with lake formation was to really simplify this and turn the problem inside out to allow you to essentially set up your data lake permissions in lake formation, have the access control policies live next to the data in the data catalog, uh, and then when users come in and authenticate and then try to use a service, the service actually sends the user credentials and the roles the user has to lake formation. The lake formation catalog looks at those roles, see what that user is allowed to access, returns a short-term credential that represents the, the data that that person is allowed to see, um, and so regardless of the service the customer used to come in, uh, they're going to get a policy vended to them that defines what data they can see. And uh, this will be honored uh, in Athena, in Redshift, and in EMR. And so you'll get the ability to essentially define permissions once 
and then open up access to uh, a range of managed services, and then those will come in um, and have those policies enforced. And so in the Lake Formation Console and APIs, we give you a way to um, easily control access to data. So in the top right, you've got a console screenshot. It shows tables. You can add or revoke permissions for tables. Uh, you can think about what users and roles can access which tables and columns. You don't have to think about objects. Uh, and then we give you easy ways to see what policies a user has, uh, or you can see what permissions have been given on a particular table. So we want to give you multiple vectors to analyze who's allowed to see what. Uh, and that gives you a central place from which to audit all data access. And similarly, we want you to be able to search and understand what permissions people have. So in the top right, you've got uh, user permissions. You can see a username. You can see what tables they're allowed to access. You can see what permissions they have on that table. Uh, this is explorable through the console or via APIs. And you can go the other way. Rather than looking and saying, hey, what can this user do? You can say, oh, I have this table. Who's allowed to do what to it? And you can come the other way and look at tables or columns and see who has permissions to interact with them. Uh, and then we also give you the, the ability to easily revoke all permissions from a particular user. Um, and so this way you can, if someone leaves the company or changes roles, it, it becomes easy to actually uh, guarantee uh, securely that they're not able to access data that they shouldn't by revoking their, uh, their abilities and their policies. And uh, that requires a confirmation step, so you don't do it by accident um, and, and lock people out. Uh, the other thing that we've built into Lake Formation is the ability to segregate permissions by columns. So this is a, a sample table. It's got a list of columns and data types. And you can restrict what user 1 can see. They can just see a subset. Uh, user 2 potentially has an admin role in this case. They can see everything. So this allows you to do things like uh, restrict access to PII because you can say, like, uh, you know, data analysts normally will not have access to columns that contain PII, but maybe my auditor does. Uh, and so this allows you to get very granular in terms of who's allowed to see what uh, and do it in a way that maps to how we think about accessing data, which is tables, rows, and columns, uh, not, um, not sort of buckets and objects. And so to get, dig a little deeper into the data flow, uh, what's happening here is when a user tries to query a table, which is step one, uh, the services that they're using, Athena, EMR, Redshift, they make a request to LakeFormation uh, for access to that table. So LakeFormation verifies that the user's authenticated. This can be done through IAM users or roles. Uh, we'd also support Active Directory integration through Federation. So once we know who a user is or what group they're part of, uh, Lake Formation and the catalog will vend short-term credentials uh, that essentially encode the set of permissions that user or role has for data. That permission goes back to the service. So Lake Formation isn't in the read path. The service gets back the token that represents the data access policy. Uh, the service then requests S3 for those objects. Uh, those objects come back. And then the service will actually filter out things like columns the person isn't allowed to see based on the data access policy uh, before it ever gets back to the user. So essentially, you've got uh, the ability to do very fine-grained access control on data that ties into the, customer, the models of authentication that we're all familiar with. And, um, and you can be uh, comfortable knowing that regardless of the entry point, uh, because we're enforcing policy at the data layer, 
uh, we will enforce and make sure the right columns get shown back to the user. And then naturally, this is a shared security model for infrastructure we control. We, we are responsible. Uh, but you know, if your users are tweeting out their database passwords, there's not much we can do about that. So uh, security is on both of us. Uh, the other important part here is that uh, Lake Formation's credential mechanism is not in the read path of all of your services. So you're not generating these bottlenecks. Uh, at the Lake Formation layer, essentially, the credential goes back to the service that does the filtering. Uh, so this is um, a huge time saver for customers, and we're excited to get your feedback on it uh, as you get to using this. So this has been the security and the access control piece. So the, stage, uh, the next stage is really about uh, searching and collaborating with data. So we're extending the catalog to allow customers to put in business metadata around tables and columns. So you can, when you bring in a new data set, you can say, look, this is uh, customer sales history for my uh, European regions. Uh, and you can also add other attributes like data owners or data stewards. And these become table properties. Uh, you can also talk about data sensitivity. You can add definitions to columns. We'll also support adding tags. And all of this uh, then becomes searchable. So you can then search for data sets in the catalog. Uh, you can look for all data related to customers, for example. You can say, show me all data with these column attributes. So data discovery becomes a lot easier and more meaningful. Um, and um, you can then, once you've searched and you've found a data set you like, you can straight away go to view the data, which essentially launches a query in Athena uh, and keeps track of all of the permissions that you have. So you're not allowed to see data that you don't have permissions for. You won't be able to query it. Uh, but it's a great way to then collaborate around your data catalog. And so uh, this is a, a way to prevent uh, you losing track of what data you have. You essentially start to build a catalog and an ability to explore that and make that data broadly accessible within your organizations. And then we give you a central place to where you can audit and monitor data activity. So if you think about what we've done, we've created a central authorization point for data access, which means that every time a user accesses data, the system knows about it. So this then gives you a great place from which to audit data access. So in the console, you're able to see who has done what. You can see if permissions were added or removed. Uh, and then you can also download these logs for further analysis in other systems. Uh, and we're also publishing uh, these events, these data ingest events and catalog notifications to CloudWatch. Uh, and then you can take actions based on that using CloudWatch actions. So it allows you to build workflows based on what's going on with your data uh, in a way that's much easier than was possible before uh, if, uh, because we've got this central point of authorization around data. Uh, so let's just walk through what that's going to look like. Uh, so we'll look at blueprints for ingestion. We'll look at granting permissions. And then we'll just show an example uh, of querying data. Uh, so with blueprints, uh, in the top left, you're creating a blueprint. So here we're picking a database incremental load. Uh, sorry, it's probably a little hard to read. Uh, you then pick your data source details. Here we're picking a WordPress import table. Uh, we're picking our roles. We're choosing whether it's going to be incremental or not. We're picking the column that we're going to use to determine uh, whether the data is incremental. Uh, and then we will uh, essentially set this process up, and it'll just start going. So all you're doing is figuring out um, which blueprint you want, pointing it to your tables, setting any configurations, and then we'll go. And then you can monitor the import of this data into your data lake. Uh, in this case, it's completed successfully, which is conveniently highlighted there. And you've got the other properties around uh, the table name, the role that's associated with it, the S3 object that's backing that table definition. 
Uh, and once that data uh, can, is then imported into your data lake, it's imported as a table, so you have a concept of what the columns are, what the types are, that's all registered. Uh, and then you can start to grant permissions to it. So now we can say which users have permissions and which don't. Uh, so in this case, we're giving permissions to, uh, to Sham to access this table, and he's getting select permissions. And that's the only user that has access to this table. Uh, and then we can go run a query in Athena. So here we've got in the top left, Sham's user is running a query. He's got permission. He's able to run the query. He sees results. Uh, but then Austin is logged in, and when Austin tries to query the table, he didn't have permission, and so he doesn't see any results. So this way, uh, it's all enforced at the data layer, and then the services take care of enforcing that policy uh, upstream. And there's no additional charge for lake formation, so you're only going to be charged for the underlying resources and services that you consume. Uh, we don't believe that customers should have to pay extra for security or for ease of use, and really that's why uh, we've chosen this pricing approach. So it's really designed to help you uh, accelerate your use of S3 for data lakes, make it easy to secure them centrally, uh, and then uh, use the services as you would before. And some of the customers that we've working, been working with prior to this as we've developed the service, so Change Healthcare, uh, they want a central point of control. They're one of the largest uh, payment processors in the industry and, and uh, patient record providers, and so they have uh, a need for HIPAA certification, which Lake Formation ships with on day one. Uh, and then they really need to maintain very strict control and auditing of who can access their data. Uh, and then Fender Digital, uh, you probably know Fender from the guitars, but Fender Digital builds apps and digital experiences around those guitars, and so they're also looking to build data lakes to understand customer experience. And for them, again, they want to have a single place to look at activity, marketing data, uh, but also not uh, be confident that no PII or anything like that uh, is being exposed uh, anywhere else. Um, and uh, you know, before I wrap up, I just want to ask the big data and lake formation team members who are here to please just stand up for a second. Uh, there's folks in the corner. So uh, I've given the presentation. I haven't done any of the work in building this service. So I just want to give them a round of applause for all their hard work. Thank you. And there's many more folks that couldn't make it here, but uh, it's really them that have done the work to deliver this uh, to you. Uh, and that's all I have for slides. I'm happy to stick around for questions. I won't take offense if people want to go leave and get drinks. Uh, but thank you very much, folks. Really appreciate it. Uh, you know, as you get into the preview, we're super excited to get your feedback. Uh, please email me or email us. Uh, and uh, thank you for coming to reInvent. Yeah, I think there's mics for questions if people want. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, I want to ask about, uh, thinking about GPDR, for instance, uh, what if I have to delete some kind of data for a specific user? Is, that kind, is there any flow inside lake formation for that kind of use? Um, so we're, we're definitely thinking about that. It's a common, so the question was, are there any built-in flows for dealing with GDPR data? in lake formation. So at the moment, no, but we are thinking about that. The typical model that our customers use is they'll build an exclude filter um, and then essentially run a job behind the scenes to do a delete uh, of that data within the SLA that's required by the right to be forgotten. Uh, but um, you know, please stay tuned. We're definitely thinking about what we can do here. Hi. Yeah, go ahead. I'll just alternate. So. Yeah, two questions. Um, so first, uh, 
So does Lake Formation to introduce a, a compute layer on top of S3 to resolve those permissions, the column level permissions? Or it, does it just bypass the permissions to the querying service, whether it's Redshift or uh, Athena, and the service handles the permissions themselves? And the second question is, uh, what about uh, row level based permissions? <laughs> So I'll answer the second question first. Uh, yes, we are working on row-level permissions. Okay. It'll probably come uh, immediately post-GA. It's a very common request, so uh, we absolutely will support that. Um, you know, essentially what we're doing with Lake Formation, the way it's working, is we have built, um, uh, we've built extensions to the catalog that will vend short-term credentials. And then we've modified our analytics services <clears throat> to use those short-term credentials to prevent uh, any unnecessary or unauthorized data from getting back into the system. So we're not introducing additional layers. We're modifying the capabilities of the top-level services to deal with that. OK. Thank Thanks. you. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, my question is that uh, do you support incremental loads when it comes to uh, uh, relational databases? And if you do, how do you handle the mutable data? Uh, can you say the last part? I missed that. Uh, if you do support the uh, incremental loads for, for the relational databases, do you how do you handle the mutable data? Um, Mut <clears throat> mutable data. So uh, we do support incremental loads. Today we require essentially a primary key column that we will look at. Yeah. Uh, so as long as that doesn't, uh, as long as that is something that we can look at to understand when new data has arrived, we're able to do it. Uh, for data that's uh, mutating in place without updating any of those, we'd need you to take some sort of action to signal to us uh, that we'd have to bring that data in. Okay. Hi. I have a specific use case. I have a S3 staging area. Yep. I want to move all the files from that staging area to a specific target, but I want to validate the files on the fly, and if any of them f uh, fails, I want to cancel all the transfers. Is it possible to do it with... Um, yeah, you can, so essentially we're using Glue uh, ETL jobs under the, underneath, and Glue ETL jobs are essentially running PySpark code. So you could build that validation into your Glue ETL job, um, so it'll basically validate on read, and it won't take any additional steps if that data fails. So that can be built in, uh, but you'd have to encode that into the ETL job uh, through uh, adding it to the PySpark job itself. And it would be a transaction level. Basically, everything, all the files that have already been moved would be canceled. Uh, I think it's entirely up to you as to how you'd set that up. So some customers would rather just skip a file. Other customers may want to fail the entire batch, but you would have control over how you'd configure that. Okay. Uh, just one quick one, please. We're Is starting to cheat with two or three I know, questions I know. here. All right. Is it possible to, using the monitoring level, to know when a file was accessed? Um, yes, yeah, so the auditable, uh, because we provide that central author authorization point, you will know when that file was accessed through the audit logs. Thank you. Sure. Go ahead. Uh, hello. So two it, we're going to limit it to one and one follow-up because we could be here a long time. Okay. Two quick questions. Okay. The Lake Formation catalog is it the same as a Gloop data catalog, or is it a different implementation? Uh, it'll be the same. So you'll have one catalog during the preview. We'll have two. Okay. Uh, but once we get to GA, it'll be one catalog that's uh, consistent across Glue, Lake Formation, Athena, EMR, Redshift. And the second question is uh, incremental load of data. Will it recognize the deleted rows at sources? Um, I don't know the answer to that. So um, if you just drop me an email, we'll, we'll get you an answer. Maybe just email Lake Formation PM, and I'll okay. get you an answer to that. Thank you. Thanks a lot.
Um, this kind of builds off both him and the previous guy over there. About uh, we're the really keeping loads. now with coordinated follow-ups. Yeah. Okay, um, cool. I was curious if you guys had any plans to support like a change data capture style blueprint where you're capturing every change that's replicating off the database, yep. something along those lines. Um, so the blueprint today is essentially doing incremental load based on querying a column. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it would be interesting to look at, there's some, uh, so our DMS service, for example, supports streaming changes onto S3, and those could be consumed. Uh, and there are a number of other services that will handle CDC into S3, and at that point, that could be ingested and applied, but it's not built into a blueprint today. But I, I suspect... Uh, based on the volume of questions about this, we'll have to think about how we do that before too long. Gotcha. Thank you. Sure. You talked about centralization of, um, say, access controls um, policy. Are any other policies centralized, for example, applying encryption uniformly across um, EMR, S3, et cetera? Um, so the, the short answer is yes. Not all of that will be done through the lake formation catalog, although we can explore ways to expose those controls. Um, but I don't know if you caught the announcement around um, S3 account level controls. You can essentially require that accounts are, say, all blocked or that nothing can be written without encryption. So uh, at the S3 layer, you could do that. Uh, this is more about at the logical construct of tables and columns, what are people allowed to see? Thank you. Sure. Um, about the uh, incremental ingest, um, <laughs> what are kind of mechanism to ensure we don't overload the database, like a number of connections or an, the size of the batch? Or what kind of options we have? Um, yeah, so I, I'm sorry, I don't have a precise answer to that. Uh, but uh, if you email us at Lake Formation PM, we can get into it. And uh, as we get into the preview, we'll be happy to answer that. But it's a good question. Uh, okay, sorry, follow up a question about. Uh, um, a lot of use cases, uh, we have um, a lot of tables mm -hmm. to migrate. Some of them just small tables. Is there any mechanism to combine all this to a single glue job? So right now, I guess one source table is a, uh, one glue job, right? Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be one glue job. So we could, um, you know, we could work with you to help design a glue job that looked at a set of tables and coalesced them. Okay, cool. I think Thanks. that would be doable. Thanks. Hi, so my team currently uses Apache Airflow for tr all of our pipelines. Is there a way to externally trigger the schedules for the ingestion layer? Um, so I believe there will be just because everything is uh, accessible via APIs. So you could use things like Lambda events on data arrival, or you could trigger API calls from your Airflow scheduler in order to get these processes rolling. Through the CLI? Uh, I don't know the Airflow, uh, sorry. Um, Yes, if we have APIs, we'll also have CLI, corresponding CLI calls. So you could do it that way as well. Thank you. Yep. Uh, first of all, thank you. This is amazing. Um, it's all these guys. This amazing job. This is going to, like, this is going to transform our lives. Uh, the question I have is, um, do, you, do you plan to support blue, uh, blueprints uh, for moving like Hadoop SGFS uh, payload to S3 in an easy way? That's one scenario we come up in very often. Um, yeah, so I, I can't speak to specifics, but you know, customer feedback really drives all of this, and absolutely, I think the uh, HDFS to files on S3 path is one that we absolutely want to enable. Um, you know, we don't have blueprints for that now. I, I suspect as we get into the preview, we'll learn about that, but we also do have a lot of experience with customers moving HDFS to S3, and so we can definitely uh, help you out with that. The same email alias will be good, and we'll, we'll connect the right dots. Thank you. Sure. 
So my team already created a solution for Data Lake. We're using Glue, Crawlers, Athena, uh, Lambdas. The only missing part that we had is the security. Are we gonna be able to just migrate whatever we did or use whatever we have, or we have to start from scratch? Uh, you'll be able to migrate. So once, um, in the preview phase, we don't want customers using this with production data, but as soon as we get out of preview early next year, you'll be able to migrate and build on everything that you've got. So uh, because we're essentially extending what Glue can do today, uh, the work that you've done will, will, will essentially act as the foundation of where you go from there. Awesome, thank you. Yep. I promise just one question this time. Um, <laughs> another issue that's close to, to heart in our company is data lineage. So if I can trace to audit which file was accessed or two files was accessed by a process, then they've been loaded, processed, written a new file for it. Is there a way for me to basically track this entire level? Yeah. So uh, this is very similar to the row level permissions question. Absolutely, uh, soon post GA, we will support data lineage and the ability to understand um, you know, where data went and where data came from. It's Thank gonna you. be a very super common ask, so. Thank you very much. Yep. What is the support you, uh, you're gonna offer for uh, cross-account uh, data sets? So data sets in multiple accounts being brought into it to a central glue catalog and then consumed for multiple accounts? Is that something that comes out of the box? Uh, yes, so essentially that's supported in Glue today. And typically it's very common for our customers to have an account that owns data and then allow other accounts to access data. So that, that model should be supported out of the box. But in this case have multiple accounts that own data and multiple consumers of those multiple accounts? Um, you know, we should follow up. So just okay, drop I'll me a note. Up. It's always yep. in the details on these things. Thank you. Thanks. My question is about the query or the search, being able to discover the images you have in the lake. I know you talked a lot about, like, you gave the example, example about CSV files and looking at the tables. If you have <clears throat> just a bunch of files, hundreds of thousands of images, for example, I mean, how, does it, how will it be easy to query for those things? Yeah, so you know, the way I would think about making sense of data and images or video is I would use a service like recognition, and that'll essentially generate a list of objects and a list of metadata, so scene detection, what's in the object, what kind of people, uh, and that metadata is then something that you can ingest into uh, something like Elasticsearch. That's the best way to get a search index built on top of things like uh, video or imagery. That's not really the use case we're targeting at the moment with the catalog, but we're always open to feedback on that. Okay, thank you. Yep. Um, my question is, is there any data masking functionality or features um, where like, you know, in just like, you know, other than column level permissions where user cannot see the data if we just mask on the fly? Uh, so initially we won't. So if you will be wanting to do masking or obfuscation, you'll typically do that as part of your transform job. Um, you know, it's something that we do hear from customers, so we will take a look at it, but it's not going to be part of the initial set. Got it. And the second question is this column level permission. Um, where do you specify that these are the columns uh, which you need to kind of like, okay, hey, PII or PCI columns, and is there any dynamic way to control it using the tags or something rather than managing that in a policy somehow? I'm not sure how exactly it works, but... Uh, yeah, so the... the um, I think you, you, you talked about it exactly correctly, which is using tags, and essentially once columns are tagged, then those tags have a set of permissions and roles that are allowed to see them, and that's how that all flows through. So you don't have to manually reconfigure it for every user that's accessing every column. You can associate tags with roles, and then that will take care of that side of things. So, so there will be a column level tagging? 
which yeah, is... Yeah, that's right. So we'd be able to tag at the column and the table level. Got it. Cool. Thanks. Uh, definitely one of the best sessions this reinvent. Thanks for that. Oh, well, uh, thank you. My question is around the uh, interoperability between data warehouse and data lakes. They, they expect to address different uh, use cases, right? So how do you expect from a product roadmap perspective, like based on changing business needs, how, how could they shift from one to the other? Yeah, uh, no, it's a great question. So, um, you know, you're exactly right. They address different use cases, and that's why we organize the way we do. We believe in providing the right service for the right use case. Uh, and so in our managed services, Redshift is our data warehouse. It's a relational MPP data warehouse with uh, ACID semantics. Uh, but it also has this Redshift spectrum layer, which provides a federated scale-out query over arbitrary data in S3. Uh, and so what we recommend to customers is, look, even if you have a data warehousing workload, start with ground truth in S3, ingest that into your data warehouse, and then you can run data warehousing workloads on that data and still have access uh, 2S3 through a interfaces that you're familiar with. And that way you don't need to morph your data warehouse into something it's not. But then if other customers have needs to access data using Spark on EMR or they want to run ad hoc SQL through Athena, they can do that on the same data because it also exists in S3. So that's the way to think about um, how to combine those use cases. Thank you. Yeah, hello. Uh, what's the pattern for uh, robo level security here? Uh, so I can't share specific timelines. Uh, you know, our plan is to GA uh, early next year and shortly after that follow with row level. It's, uh, it is the, one of the top things that we'll be working on. Hi, um, my question is, can I use the column level access control with Spark? Uh, yes, so we do in intend to make that available essentially with Spark, Hive, Presto, and EMR. Uh, as long as you're using the lake formation and glue catalogs, uh, Spark through EMR will honor that. Oh, we've run out on that mic. All right. Uh, one question. <laughs> <laughs> you're not so lucky. Okay. Um, sorry, one quick no, question. No, no problem. <laughs> so who do you see as the right customer for this product? People at companies have already taken some of their data onto S3 but have not used that glued data catalog. Do you see them also as customers for this product or only yeah. new customers who are going into the S3? So, you know, my selfish hope is that every single person at reInvent and beyond will be a customer for this product. So I do think S3 is the right location for data. But uh, if you've got an existing data lake, that's great. It's no problem. Uh, you know, if you want to move some of that to lake formation to make it easier to manage policies over time, that's great. Uh, this is really a service for anyone that's dealing with data on S3 uh, and accessing that data for analytics. So, uh, you know, whether you're starting for the first time or you've got existing locations, either one will work. We can register existing S3 locations or we can create new ones to act as the starting point for data lakes. Thank you. Yep. Go ahead. been thinking about how to formulate this question. Oh, okay. I apologize if it's a little, a little bit meandering, but with, uh, uh, with ingesting a huge bunch of data, and one of the biggest things I've been hearing about in this conference is making sure you have high quality data in your data lake. How do you measure the quality, the quality of how well you, you set it up? Yeah, that's, uh, it's, you know, it's an easily stated question with a complicated answer. I mean, the, the basic thing is, 
data quality is really a relative issue. It's what matters for your business. Like if you're looking at clickstream logs of a web app, you may not care if you lose everything. If you're looking at medical doses coming off an EMR system, you might actually care a lot about every single thing. So uh, you know, data quality is context dependent, and you'll have to decide what are the metrics and dimensions that matter for quality, and then build that quality scoring into part of your ingest job. So basically, the typical flow will be you'll have raw data arriving. It'll go through a transform and quality validation step. And that's where you'll do the audit that's relevant for the business use case for the data at hand. And then you would decide what, what you do then do. That's really a business and uh, use case specific uh, response. But developing that is part, of, is part of making a data lake? Sorry? Developing that, that's, a, that's a kind of a, a one of the steps that will be in lake formation? Yeah, I mean, I think the place to build this in would be either in a scheduling workflow that orchestrates the jobs or into the ETL job itself. So the, there's no, it's no getting away from the fact that you've got to check that what you're going to, about, about to put in makes sense for the context. Thank you. Yep. Go ahead. Yeah, but uh, just building on that last question, we saw that the loading jobs are going to be part of the lake formation definition itself, right, in the blueprint phase. So maybe what he said makes sense. I mean, the quality should be part of the lake formation. But that was not my question, just a comment. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fair comment, and I think, you know, when working with us, ev everything is a discussion. We're like, right. you know, if we think it's the right thing to Eventually do Eventually, they're going to release a new yeah. quality service or something. That's right. Uh, but uh, the, the actual question, and uh, a third question, sorry, but the actual question was, um, and actually, I do have two questions. One is, regarding the loading, that we saw in the blueprint phase. I mean, are you going to eventually support on-prem databases as well, connected through direct connect or something? And uh, the second question is going back to the interaction between S3 in the upper querying services, whether it's uh, Redshift Spectrum or Athena, it doesn't matter. But uh, I'm trying to understand. So if there is a query that's trying to, I don't know, get 10 columns and the S3 data set has 100 columns or 1,000 columns, and imagine that that, that relates to 100 gigs in, 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 in your data set, but I'm really only interested in one gig of that data set. Does S3 still fetch everything up to the upper service, and I'm effectively paying for that whole traffic? Or am I, is eventually, is lake formation going to eventually be able to optimize that traffic between those services? Yeah. So the answer to your first question was, I think we intend to, anywhere we can get a network connection to a database that we support, we want to support being able to get data from it. Okay. Uh, so the, the second question is, um, you know, do, can you, how do you optimize the scan? And, and really today, there's two ways to optimize the scan, and this exists outside of lake formation. So one is to convert your data into Parquet or ORC. Uh, and then the database query engine that you're using will only select the columns that are needed, and only those columns will be read and filtered. Uh, if you have a, a large object like a JSON blob, that'll just get read and then filtered en masse. So for data that you query regularly, we strongly recommend you convert it to an optimized format. It'll okay. save you money, and your queries will run faster. Okay. Um, there, is a, you know, there is a new capability in S3 that's also supported in EMR, which is S3 Select. So S3 Select allows you to actually push down filters into objects like JSON and CSV, uh, but you'd have to explicitly call that in your jobs today. But that would also allow you to then only extract a subset of the data that was in a non-optimized format. But in general, 
uh, if you're going to query data regularly, th there's just no good reason to not uh, take the one-time conversion into an optimized form. But sorry, just to compliment, but that does support, that does help with the column level access. What about row level access? In row level access, you really need to know what data is there before you even optimize or fetch it. I mean, what yeah, I'm I mean, trying to understand is, are we seeing more of an optimizer kind of behavior being embedded into lake formation? So the forward? optimizer behavior that you'll see is partition elimination. So if you're filtering based on data the way it's partitioned, then we can skip partitions. Okay. Uh, but there isn't sort of this clustered index idea that you know we just happen to know that randomly that these are the keys to go fetch from your row from your columns. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate yep. it. Hi. Um, <clears throat> I'll try and articulate it uh, clearly. Our use case is we write to a staging area, we validate and so on and so on and copy to a target area. But the time is really important. I mean, we really need the copy to be done as quickly as possible because the data is going to be used by a different job sure. that's waiting for it to be ready. From my experience, glue catalog can take forever to scan, especially if you have many small files. Also, if you run ETL jobs, you have to sometimes adjust the DPUs which I assume we wouldn't need to do in this service. So, uh, so the question is how do we basically make sure that the performance is performant? Sure, so uh, you know, performance, just please email us at lakeformation-pm uh, lake and we'll dig into the specifics. It's hard to provide general answers on perf, uh, but we'd, we'll be happy to dig in and see what we can do to help. Okay. Thank you. Yep. So, you so we got, let's see, six and a half minutes, so I guess we can keep going. But if anyone wants to leave, please, I won't be offended. Just uh, walk on out. It's all good. So you were saying that we will be able to use tagging for access. So currently, our federated users, they log into only one role. Are we going to be able to use multiple roles within the catalog for uh, the data lake? Or will that be for federated users? They will have to have their individual role in order to be able to have this granular access in the data lake. Yeah, so um, essentially whatever is doing the authenticating, that's the thing that the permissions are associated with. So if you've got multiple users associated with the role, uh, it'll be tied to that role. So we'll need to either construct alternate policies. Uh, we're trying to think through ways to achieve what you're talking about, um, and happy to follow up after the fact if you shoot us a note. Uh, we'd love to understand what you're trying to really get done and see what the best way to do that would be. Awesome, thank you. Yep. So uh, my question is that we have data stored in different kind of formats, like uh, CSV and Parquet. So in order to use a column-wise con access controls, does it require the data to be stored in specific format? Uh, no, essentially, because you're defining logical tables in the catalog, those tables can be defined on data regardless of type underneath. Um, what, so you, you don't need to convert it to get the column-level filtering. The, the, the trade-off is, uh, you'll spend longer scanning that data because we'll have to scan all of it to, to filter out the columns that should be filtered out, whereas in the case of a columnar format, you can avoid reading those columns entirely. Okay, so there is going to be performance difference here. Uh, yes, because it's just, a, I mean, it's physics. You're going to read more data with an unoptimized object than you would with something that was compressed or columnar. Great, thank you. Yep. Uh, there was an announcement today about uh, Outpost. Uh, Outpost yep. uh, was an interesting offering. Uh, do you think S3, leg formation, this kind of service will be available in Outpost so that um, we can use that as a sort of enterprise data like as an alternative to Hadoop uh, in enterprise setting? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I'm not the subject matter expert on Outpost, but the intent for Outpost is to provide hardware that you run in your data center 
that is identical to AWS. So essentially anything running on Outpost will transparently connect back to services like S3 or KMS or LakeFormation. So from a user perspective, there'll be no difference. So these, all of these services will be visible to you uh, through your Outpost infrastructure. Uh, we are using Apache Ranger uh, as a data governance tool right now, uh, yeah. the security tool. So do you guys have any plan to, uh, once we have that implemented, because this is looks like it's going to take some time to mature this one. So do you guys have any plan to import that data and export into the data lake, lake formation? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um you know, I'd love to follow up on that. We have a number of customers that we're in discussions with that use Ranger at the moment. I think, uh, you know, Ranger is, is good, but it really only works for the Hadoop-centric applications. Um, and so our, our view is that with table column and row-level permissions and things like column tags, we should be able to get to what you've got in Ranger. But uh, in terms of importing Ranger policies and expressing them as lake formation, uh, we haven't made a decision on that. But please email us at lakeformationpm, and we'd love to follow up. Uh, hello. Um, Hi. For this to, to work with the compliance and security, does the ingestion and cleansing of the data need to happen through glue, or is it okay if we have custom Spark jobs? Uh, it does not need to happen through glue. Uh, so you, it's designed to be modular, so you can use whatever elements of it you want to or don't want to. The, the key to make the security work is to ensure that the data is registered in the catalog and that you've closed off any other side channel access to the data. But it can be transformed in Spark or through any other process. Okay, thanks. Great. All right, well, two minutes to spare. Well, thank you very much, folks. I appreciate it. And uh, enjoy the rest of reInvent.